6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 2 Timothy, chapters 3 and 4. Perseverance. Another way of saying the same thing, he knows that God is in control. That gives you perseverance. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've spent 30 years in the corporate management world, and I've read a lot of books and studies about success. And there's one, one attribute that is always at the head of the list of any serious study. There have been many of them, and they all agree. It's not intelligence. It's not education. There's a whole bunch of good things to have, but they're not at the top of the list. The main thing that distinguishes a winner in, in management, what have you, is perseverance, stick-to-itiveness. People who go the course. And uh, that's high on any, anybody, any serious list. And there's other characters, a good leader, persecution, sufferings, and so forth. Jesus promised that, that would come. In the infantry, they'll tell you, stay away from the tanks. Because tanks will draw the heavy fire. Okay? If you're on foot near one of those, be careful. You may have to be, but I mean, what I'm saying is that uh, the bigger the tank, the heavier, uh, heavier shells that are being aimed at it, so to speak. Persecuting suffering. If you're not persecuting suffering, is there some strange reason? Maybe you're not, you're, not, you're not a threat to Satan. I guess that could be the answer. Anyone that doesn't believe in Satan should try opposing him for a while. Yep. So Paul makes that remark. Even though I had I had those characteristics, I still suffered. In other words, just because you have all these characteristics doesn't mean you'll be spared persecution and sufferings. He continues, verse 11, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. That was Paul's claim. At Lystra, by the way, we talk about suffering. He was left for dead. He was stoned and left for dead. Some scholars even think he may have died and been resurrected. That's a speculation. Who knows? And so uh, that God raised him. He could have. Maybe he did. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's a promise you can count on. Yes, even here in America. It's going to cost to be a Christian, even here in America. It's been a free ride for a long time. Those days are ending. Melvin Laird, former Secretary of Defense, got a very interesting quote picked up from him. In this world, it's becoming more and more unpopular to be a Christian. Soon it may become dangerous. He said this several decades ago, and it's becoming true. And what about persecution? How do you persecute a group? There's a classic five-step program to persecute a group. It's worth understanding. How do you persecute a group? Well, first you have to identify your target group. Who are you going to persecute? You've got to identify who they are. Okay. Then you need to marginalize that group. Make them somehow dis distinctive and separate and marginalized. Then you start vilifying this target group. Then you pass laws against the beliefs or activities of that target group. And then you simply enforce the laws. That's the way the Nazis did it to the Jews in Germany. 
identified them, of course. They marginalized them. Then they vilified them. Then they passed laws against those things which the Jews did. And then they enforced the laws. When the Gestapo broke down the door of the home in the middle of the night and took away the head of the family down into prison, they were not breaking the law. They were enforcing it. That was not an unlawful act. By then they had so many rules and laws and stuff, they could do anything. Anyway. Verse 13, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Seducers, also the term means imposters, leading many astray. And I'm going to suggest that includes presidents and congressmen, what have you. No one's immune. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. That's your anchor. See, adults need guidance even more than children do. Did you know that? Because their opportunities and perils are far more significant. So they need guidance even more. The more opportunities you have, the more guidance you need. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What, what a wonderful thing. Timothy had, been, had grown from a child. He knew his scriptures. He may have been a, a little timid. He may have a little been a little standoffish. But he was well grounded. So Paul put him to good use. The only antidote against all of these things is the Word of God. The only antidote is against the Word of God. And it's the extensive biblical illiteracy within the body of Christ that has caused the Coin Institute to be formed. A think tank for any Christian that is serious about being an ambassador can be participant in it. But it's the, the, the primary goal is to repair the biblical illiteracy within the body of Christ. Make thee wise unto salvation. Boy, boy, boy. Remember, there are three tenses to salvation. The past tense, separation from the penalty of sin. The present tense, separation from the power of sin. And the future tense, separation from the presence of sin. Past, present, and future, penalty, power, and presence. We call the past tense justification. You're justified by Christ. He did 100% of the job. If you trust Christ, you are saved in a past tense sense, and that's, that endures. Present tense of salvation we call sanctification. And that's a process, not an end. That because, that's what happens once you're justified. Then you have the Holy Spirit to guide you and grow you into being separated from the power of sin. The sin does no longer, no longer reigns in your life. You may stumble here and there, but you have the power to overcome that through the Holy Spirit. And that leads to the future tense, which is called glorification, separation from the presence of sin. The definitive study of all of this, of course, is in the epistle to the Romans. But we'll, we, all three of these things, justification, sanctification, glorification, being the three tenses, if you will, of what we loosely call salvation. Salvation is a, a very difficult term because it can mean many things to many people. You can be saved from a burning building. You can be saved from the visit of your mother-in-law. There are all kinds of things you can be saved from. But when we use the word salvation, we normally mean theologically. That's why using these three are more definitive. So I encourage you to be more precise in your thinking about this. Justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous. Sanctification makes the sinner righteous. When you, when you trust Christ, you're saved, but you may not have changed at all yet. But you will if you have been saved. 
Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the growth and power of sin. Those are the differences. That brings us to verse 16. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy, last letter Paul. 3.16, you can't forget. John 3.16. A lot of 3.16s in the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture. Does that say most Scripture? All Scripture. Important word. All Scripture. Is given by the inspiration of God. These guys sort of were inspired and sort of reflected what they thought about God. No, no. The Greek word there actually means God breathed. And there's substantial evidence to indicate he breathed every letter. He somehow, the letters themselves have properties that are impossible to simulate with a computer. That's another whole thing I won't get into here. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for four, th four different things. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. What are those four things? What, doctrine, what's right? For reproof, that's what's not right. For correction, how to get it right. And for instruction, how to stay right. That helps maybe with those four words, maybe? Okay. For instruction and righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And um, see, the all scripture, it, it doesn't mean that it contains the word of God. No, it is the word of God. And uh, so if you put man in there, the role of editor, you, you're just selecting what he agrees with, um, sort of reminds you of W.C. Fields. When they noticed he was studying the Bible, he said, what are you doing? Looking for loopholes. <laughs> Perfect, complete, fitted for use, mature. Mature, completion in the sense of being mature. Okay, we're in the last chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is his deathbed testimony. I charge thee therefore... Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. That's kind of an interesting word. At his appearing, and that's when the kingdom is established. The kingdom of God. We take that so for granted. No, you see, Paul was alone, incarcerated in the Mamertine prison in Rome. His final appointment was, you know, we're all going to die on time, by the way. Did you know that? All of us. Not early, not late. God knows what he's doing. We each have an appointment. And our final exam has also been scheduled. Ooh. Yes, we should be cramming for our final. Paul continues, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Be instant. The word really means diligent or maybe urgent. There's an urgent diligence implied by that. He doesn't say preach from the word. A lot of pastors say, I preach from the Word every Sunday. No, 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 uh-uh. Preach the Word. That's not the same as preaching from the Word. You preach the Word. What does the Word of God say? I respect those pastors who have a program for their churches in which the pastor leads the church verse by verse throughout the entire Bible through their church here. He doesn't pick a topic here and a topic here. That's fine. No, he preaches the word verse by verse, book, chapter by chapter, book by book. Some of them he may glide over, summarize a little bit perhaps. But the idea is you preach the word of God, not from the word. You preach the word of God. And all your other problems will ultimately be dealt with as you do that. But a text is a pretext that's taken out of context. 
That sometimes happens. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And it says reprove, with conviction that is. Rebuke. The word actually means threaten. <laughs> exhort with all long suffering. Exhort. The word exhort, by the way, really means comfort. I have an exhortation for you. No, no, I should be comforting you on some issue. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. That's Laodicea today. Not enduring sound doctrine. That's our church today. They don't want sound doctrine. That sounds old-fashioned and corny. We're too modern for that sort of thing. They have, but they have itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto what? Fables. You know, it really fascinates me. You get in discussions with some, what I'll call pseudo-intellects. They think they know everything. They've turned away from the Bible because they've decided they've studied that and that doesn't make sense for whatever reason. Okay. Look what they ultimately turn to. They will later, you'll run into them again a year later or something, and they will be into the most stupid, vapid, empty you can imagine. All this scholarly skepticism has gone out the window. They're into whatever and under fables. It's fascinating to me because you see, it's not intellectual exercise, it's spiritual exercise. These people commit themselves to the noise rather than signal. You know, as an engineer, you speak of signal and noise ratio. The randomness, the noise, is that what you don't want. In there, there's the signal that you try to pull out of the noise. That's the whole idea of, of communication and receivers and what have you. Well, they can commit themselves to the noise rather than the signal. That's basically what they're doing. The ultimate fable is attributing their very origin to a random accident. Well, we just happened. Yes, we're skillfully designed, but that just happened by accident. And then they adopt that view, and then they wonder why they have no sense of destiny. We teach our kids in school that they're here by some cosmic accident, and then we wonder why they have no sense of purpose or sense of destiny. How can they have if they're just a random accident? It used to be the classic challenge before the educational system was to discover truth. And we've twisted this whole thing around in the last few decades to deny the very existence of truth. Well, if you're denying the existence of truth... <laughs> then why learn anything? Why learn history? Why learn literature? You're wasting your time. There is no truth. The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. The book came out some years ago. It's worth reading. It's amazing the ellipsis that's taken place because as we deny the existence of truth, we've closed our mind to all learning. But watch thou in all things... Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And he's going to be poured out like a drink offering, really. Departure. This is not the same word as in 1 Thessalonians. I won't go into that here. It's a different word altogether, anyway. But analusis, an unloosing, and... Um, it's uh, very much like uh, loosing when you remove the dock lines of a boat taking off on a, on a, on a cruise. It's at the dock, you take the bow line, the stern line, you're unloosing. It's that, that, that's the same concept of the word in the Greek. Um, I am, my departure is at hand, like a ship ready to leave the dock. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept... 
Paul loved these athletic metaphors. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Really, what on earth is that? That's a crown that is because he fought a good fight, finished his court, etc. A crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. He's a good combat soldier. See, it's not only a battle, it's also a race. He's out to win a prize. And he's also a good steward. He's going to deal with all of those in his other letters, by the way. Crowns. Let's talk about these crowns. There's a crown of life that James talks about, shows up in Revelation 2, for those that have suffered for his sake. There's a crown that not all of us are going to get. Some of us have been managed to get through life without suffering for Christ in a overt, strong way. Well, the ones that have are going to get a crown of life, apparently. There's a crown of righteousness that we've just read just now for those who loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? I hope so. The crown of glory for those who fed the flock. Have you fed the flock of God? Have you done something to help your brothers in Christ grow and learn and strengthen? Crown of glory. A crown incorruptible for those who press on steadfast. If you're steadfast, there's another crown. I don't happen to believe that these are the only five crowns. They might all be the same crown. I don't know. But these are the way they're expressed in the scripture. There's a crown of rejoicing for those who win souls. And I'd be hard-pressed to define which one comes if the, and excludes the other. These all sort of mesh. So there may be 20 different crowns. These are four, five that happen to be mentioned expressly in the Scripture. So I'm not here to make a big, you know, big paradigm out of these crowns, except to realize there are crowns that will be earned. Earned. And that's why I, want to, I think the key point here is that I think everybody at the judgment seat of Christ is going to have a different result. Different Positives or different negatives? See, we're dealing here with inheritance, not salvation. Everyone before the judgment seat of Christ is saved. That's why they're there. But there is an issue of inheritance. See, for centuries, theologians have fought the wrong battle. The Calvinism versus Arminians. They say, once saved, always saved. On the one hand, or conditional salvation, that you're not saved unless you stick it out to the end. See, the problem is the difference between justification, which enters heaven, and sanctification, which determines your, the degree of your inheritance. We need to understand who the metakoi are. They're the partakers. If you visualize this as a path between two mountains, over here we have the Calvinists, and over here we have the Arminians. They're both true in what they assert. They're both wrong in what they deny. What path are we on? On the partakers, the right up between. Justified by Christ alone. You contribute nothing to that. But your contribution is to earn your inheritance that then accrues to that. Who are the metakoi? They're the select ones. They are the joint heirs with Christ. 2 Timothy uh, 2, from 11 to 13, and then there's a path in Hebrews also. You and I also, you can also be disqualified from the prize. You're saved, but there are prizes that you get disqualified from. There's all kinds of verses on that. Let's take a look at a couple of these. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all 
that's we, we the believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That doesn't determine salvation. It's already assumed if you're there, you're saved. I'll show you the next in 1 Corinthians 3. But Paul, just to talk about 1 Corinthians 9 for a minute. Paul says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. What? Paul says, I myself should be a castaway. Paul was paranoid. Was he afraid he was going to lose his salvation? Of course not. He wrote the book on that. Romans 8 and elsewhere. He knew he was saved. That's not his concern here. He's concerned that he may forfeit his inheritance. That may I preach to others, and I myself might be a castaway, have missed the mark. 1 John 2.8. John says a similar thing. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Can you be ashamed? Apparently, it's possible. Do not be ashamed before his coming. And Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Through faith and patience inherit the promises. You're not talking about salvation. You can't earn your salvation. You're talking about inheritance. Made more clear in Hebrews 3. For we are made partakers of Christ. Partakers. That's that word metakoi. A partaker. For we are made partakers of Christ if, big word, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. You want to hang on all the way through the end. Metakoi. The word means those who share in, companions, comrades, partners in a work, officer, dignity. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. So we need, there is a part of this picture that you earn. Not your salvation, that's the gift of God. I should be more precise. Not your justification. That's done by Christ, 100%. So anyway, Paul continues in 2 Timothy. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved his present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, and Titus unto Dalmatia. See, Paul's lonesome. These people are running off. Now, Crescens, by the way, is you try to investigate some of these people. Obviously, Demas, you know, forsook forsake him. Crescens went off to Galatia. He may have been, some scholars believe he was one of the 70 that are spoken of in the Gospels. They, there's also traditions that he founded the church in Vienna. But uh, these are without any real trustworthy basis. They're just uh, traditions within the church literature. Paul continues, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Now, Mark here here is John Mark. That is his Jewish name. Mark was his Roman name, okay? And uh, it's interesting. It's been more than 10 years since they had the big argument. Barnabas and Paul had a big dispute over Mark and split up. That breach had separated Paul and Barnabas. It apparently has now healed And Mark has earned his spurs with Paul. He apparently, being very Jewish, was unwilling to go up into Galatia. That's where he balked and went home. Or was it in Cyprus? Anyway, uh, uh, he he left for whatever reason. 
he split off. And, and, and uh, Paul and Barnabas really, uh, I mean, uh, Paul really was upset by that. And Barnabas takes, Paul, uh, takes uh, Mark under wing. And that's when Paul picks up Silas, and they, they had this, this big dispute. Because apparently Paul looked at Mark as a young, spoiled background. He was very, come from a very wealthy family. And there are traditions that he might have been the young man that fled Gethsemane in the linen and all that, uh, virtually naked, etc. There's, uh, there's, there's a lot of inferential suggestions about Mark. But in any case, he was young and from a wealthy background, and apparently Paul had disdain for him because he just didn't, from Paul's point of view, didn't stay the course. He apparently re-earned his spurs, so to speak, and by now, 10 years later, he is, Paul reinstates him. He says, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. So Paul's forgiven Mark for whatever it's worth. After Paul's death, Mark becomes Peter's amanuensis, or secretary, commonly. The, the gospel of Mark is really Peter's, Peter's gospel. Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. Paul had trusted Tychicus to deliver the circular letters not just to all proconsular Asia. Ephesians, Laodicea, and Laodicea and Colossians were about one mile apart. They're not very far away from each other. But Tychicus delivers those epistles. And in Colossus, Tychicus would plead the case of Onesimus who had accompanied him from Rome. Onesimus is uh, the runaway slave that he writes to Philemon to take back and so forth. And that, that there's a very charming example of intercession in this little letter that Paul writes to Philemon on the case of Onesimus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, especially the parchments. Troas was a chief city in northwest Asia, uh, Asia Minor, that is, and, and uh, it was on the coast of Asia in the Roman province. When we say Asia, we mean the Roman province of Asia. It was at Troas that Paul raised uh, Eutychus from the dead, back in Acts 20. We're not sure who Carpus was as we try to search the literature, uh, but it's clear that Paul had a lot of confidence in him, not only just because his cloak is there, but because these priceless books and parchments were left there. I want to talk about them briefly. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Timothy. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music